We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome back, dear listener. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. And what the hell happened in the last seven days on this planet? It seems like you almost need seven days to review what happened in seven days. Things are moving so quickly. So I, of course, am Trevor the Iron Fist. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. It's normally a little panel discussion where we talk about what's happening in the world. And when we started the podcast about four years ago, our emphasis was on secularism and religion. And then we've done a lot on just general current affairs that have nothing to do with religion. But, um, and of course, of late, we've been dominated by uh, the coronavirus. So I don't know about you, but I'm kind of just needing a little bit of a coronavirus break. So we're going to start um, this episode talking about religion and secularism in Australia and some of the things that are going on, and then inevitably we'll fall into um, a coronavirus chat towards the end. So we'll, we'll give you a bit of a coronavirus break to start with. So let me introduce uh, who's with me, and we've got, if you're watching on the live stream, you would see there's a, there's a cast of thousands here. So with <laughs> me, with me as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. And as always, Paul, the 12th man. Peace, Earthlings. Greetings. Yes. And we've also got Peter Monk, who is the president of the National Secular Lobby. Welcome aboard, Peter. G'day, everyone. Thanks for having me. All right, fingers crossed the te technology holds up here. We're all uh, hanging on by a thread to our NBN connections <laughs> as best we can. And um, hopefully uh, the audio and everything will, will be okay. So we'll see how we go. But, um, well, dear listener, uh, so as I said, let's talk about what's happening in religious affairs. And, of course, today was the day where um, Cardinal Pell, uh, the High Court, decided that his conviction was not appropriate, and uh, they cancelled that. So he was questioned. He's a free man, uh, able to go. And, dear listener, we've got to be careful about what we say here because people might have strong feelings about uh, his guilt or innocence, and uh, if we say things too strong or too hard, we're liable for a defamation action. So if we were sitting around uh, having a beer... Um, at a pub, our language, our thoughts might be a lot more than what they are now, or they may not be. Who knows? But we do, there is a, a sort of a line we have to be careful with here. So bear that in mind. Peter, the National Secular Lobby, I would imagine, doesn't have, wouldn't, well, do they have a position on this, or is there anything that they would like to say about it? Um, I, I probably can't say anything on behalf of the NSL. Um, I think as, as long as the the letter of the law has been followed, then um, there's not much we can say about it. But, um, yeah, I guess on a personal level, I suppose, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed in the verdict, and I'm sure it must be a very difficult verdict for uh, for the victims and for a lot of people to hear. Yeah. Scott or Paul, any thoughts strike you when you heard it? After you, Scott. I wasn't surprised that the High Court voted to – I was surprised it was 7-0 that they voted in favour of it. Um, but was it was seven judges, wasn't it? I don't know. I haven't had a chance I, I to look at that. Was, yeah. I thought it was all seven. Anyway, it was it was all of them voted to quash the quash the um, conviction. I was surprised that you managed to convince all seven of them, shall we say? Um, 
I was also very surprised that the guilty verdict happened in the first place. Um, however, you know, then when you hear different snippets of information which the jury shouldn't have had access to, then there might have been some sway over the way that people were thinking. But the main reason behind the original guilty verdict is my understanding of it was the compelling nature of the complainant he was very compelling in his witness in his testimony and that's why they've apparently that's why the jury voted to convict but as i said i'm not surprised that his conviction was quashed today um am i personally disappointed no not really i'm not that invested in it but um yeah, it's one of those things. I, I I just don't think that you're ever going to see a proper justice in something that old. It was quite an old case. You're never going to satisfy everybody on a, on a no, case like that. No, you're not. Paul, no. anything to add? Look, I was frankly surprised he was convicted in the first place purely on the testimony of one person uh, speaking about something that happened quite a few years prior, uh, gee, you know, I, I have no idea whether he's guilty or innocent, and, uh, but I, I, our justice system is working properly, then I can't see how you can convict a person of a, of a serious crime uh, based on the testimony of one person, just one person with no corroborating evidence. So I was very surprised he was convicted in the first place and, and not at all surprised that he was uh, he was free today. Yeah, so I haven't had a chance to read it in depth or in detail, but it does seem... Uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit from the judgment and what they said was, it remains the evidence of witnesses whose honesty was not in question. One, um, place the applicant on the steps of the cathedral for at least 10 minutes after Mass on the 15th and the 22nd of December. Uh, placed him in the company of Portelli when he returned to the priest's sacristy to remove his vestments and described continuous traffic into and out of the priest's sacristy for 10 to 15 minutes. So, uh, And there was another incident where basically the court has said, well, there was, un, um, uh, there was testimony from somebody else which was in contrast to the witness's testimony or the victim's testimony and and basically saying, making full allowance for the advantages enjoyed by the jury, there is a significant possibility in relation to charges one to four that an innocent person has been convicted. So so here's, here's what I would say, though. Well, here's my feelings, and, and, I, and um, I've got a, a challenge out there for people. What we've got with, well, people may not realise this, but uh, at the start of each year, or they call it the legal year, our judges from our state supreme courts um, put on their full robes and regalia and, and and participate in a ceremony with church leaders. So in uh, Victoria, it's called the Red Mass, and in Queensland, they call it the opening of the law year. So, for example, in Queensland... At the beginning of the year, judicial officers, members of the legal profession and the community are invited to attend the law year church service. The origins trace back to the Middle Ages. And it rotates through a number of different inner city churches, including Greek Orthodox Church of St George, 
um, and other jurisdictions and also mosques and synagogues. And, um, well, they say that for many years it was held in the middle of the year as the cooler weather allowed judges to wear their ceremonial robes more comfortably. Recently, Queensland followed a Commonwealth-wide move towards a simpler, more modern robe design suitable for our subtropical climate. As a result, the church service is now held at the beginning of the year. Well, that tells you they get dressed up in the full robes and there's a picture uh, as part of the show notes, uh, the red robes and the wigs and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, there's dozens of our judges there, it seems, in a full ceremony with church leaders and afterwards the full tea and scones and whatever. And, you know, I've got no doubt our High Court judges are not biased, but perception is important. And when our judiciary is entering into religious ceremonies like this at the start of each year, that's just not a good look. It's, you know, that's just not on. It should not be on. It's, of course, it's tradition when there were close ties between the church and the judiciary, but there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be those close ties. So, um, so, um, so that's the point I'd make, and my, my challenge would be to the Satanists out there: um, put on your full Satanist robes <laughs> and attend the next ceremony in your state because it's open to everybody. And let's just see how they feel about um, this. And it would be a good way of highlighting the ridiculousness of this that our our judicial leaders are involved in some sort of uh, regular ceremony with church leaders. Now, it's fine for our Supreme Court judges to be Catholics or Greek Orthodox or whatever and attend ceremonies in their own private time, but attending in official capacity as judges of our courts is not on. It should not be happening. So um, so there's a campaign for you, Peter, the NSL, um, a, a sort of a protest. What do you think? I mean, do you think that's something... The secular lobby would be uh, sort of calling on judges not to go to that ceremony. Well, I, I reckon that's something we could look into for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. And there's definitely something to be said about the perception um, of, of, of that kind of relationship. If there's any, if there's any part of society that you would certainly have hope um, is free of prejudice or favoritism, it would be the legal profession, uh, seeing as they're deciding the outcome of cases and they're deciding people's fates. Um, yeah, you, you want to make sure that there's that it's all on the level and there's no um, you know kind of special uh, relationships there that might be favouring some people over others. Yep. So the other thing that's happened, guys, in the last few days was a video came out where Scott Morrison um, was. Uh, it was a video of a of a phone conference that he was part of where there was like a prayer meeting between. Um, Scott Morrison and various other people, and uh, he was pretty full on in his um, in in his prayers. So um, I've got because he was embarrassing. Yeah. Oh. So I've got a bit of a clip that I've edited of what uh, of what his prayer was. So I'll play some of that for and now the audio on this um, is the best I've got. So bear with me, dear listener, on this one. But it is a moment like when Moses looked out at the sea and uh, held up his staff when they went. There are moments of great faith in, in all of this. 
Um, but as a Prime Minister, I have to um, take my decisions on the basis of very strong advice and exercise the best judgment I possibly can. And uh, my faith gives me an enormous encouragement in how I can make those decisions and, uh, and try and do that the best way I can. Let's just pray quickly, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just commit our nation to you. Let, Lord, let your love shower this nation at this time. And let, let your, your people, let those who trust in you, Lord, be instruments for your love. So, Peter, what does the NSL think of that? Well, yeah, that was um, that was a bit unexpected. Getting uh, hearing that, um, yeah. Look, I'm, I guess it, it kind of, in a way, goes back to what you were saying before about the, the perceived relationship between the legal profession and, and the church. It's kind of a similar thing here. Um, obviously, Scott Morrison, aside, aside from being the prime minister, is an individual person and beliefs. Um, but yeah, the, the I guess the question here is, uh, you know, if, if you saw the video, you would see that he was he was in his suit. He was sitting in his, I assume, his prime ministerial office, um, and uh, yeah, it looked like a very official statement. And then to say things like, you know, I commit our country to you, even to God. Um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, there's a there's a lot that could be kind of read into that uh, kind of statement. Yeah, it's it's interesting with the video, dear listener. So. The video was um, posted on the Eureka website, which is a, a pro-religious um, website, and it was obviously initially put up as, isn't this fantastic? Look at our Prime Minister praying away. And it was only up there for about three or four hours, and it was deleted. But um, uh, secular people, uh, when they saw it first off, immediately copied it, um, having had experience in the past of these sorts of things being deleted and gone missing. So certainly the Queensland Terence for Secular State Schools was one of the groups that uh, that actually um, did that. So, um, uh, And so that's a good story in itself, the way that, um, that they managed to capture the video before it got deleted. So at least some cooperation there between the secular groups. But Peter, what, what is happening with the secular groups? Are they... Are they um, getting together and working together? I know there was a March meeting that fell over. Can you tell us anything about, tell us just generally then what's happening with your neck of the woods? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, there, there is actually, um, the coronavirus has really kind of knocked it on its head a bit, unfortunately, but there is actually um, a, a joint secular group activity underway, a campaign underway at the moment. Uh, it kind of launched uh, about, a, two, about a month ago, I think. Um, in relation to the religious, religious discrimination bill, um, so it's it's uh, about ten groups I think from around Australia, uh, the Rationalist Society, the uh, Atheist Foundation, the NSL obviously, uh, the humanist uh, humanist groups. There's a, about a dozen groups from around Australia, um, all joining together to uh, to try and get the word out. Uh, the campaign is being run under uh, the under the banner "Don't Divide Us" because we feel that's the biggest threat from the the discrimination bill uh, is that it's really going to kind of um, it's going to re- it's going to make religion matter in society. It's going to kind of widen the gaps between people and, and force us to recognise those differences. Where really, in the past, Australians have had a very casual attitude to 
yields uh, the differences. Um, it, it's going to, we feel it's going to force it to be less, less so in the future. So yeah, uh, the uh, Don't Divide Us campaign has been uh, going for about a month, I think. There's a website, uh, don'tdivideus.com.au, uh, where you can go and get some more information and sign up. For, uh, there's a mailing list that, that has uh, that sends stuff out. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's worth checking out if you're interested in that issue. Yep. Any any movement on the front, uh, national secular lobby, the lobby part of national secular lobby, are you having any luck in terms of lobbying? I, I, I'm assuming it requires money and you don't have enough yet. But... <laughs> well, that's, that's yeah, that's um, always the case, basically. Yeah, it, it does require um, money and it requires time too, which um, I'm obviously very short on. Um, but, yeah, we are making some headway um, where uh, we're kind of making being in touch more often with politicians. Uh, we were just recently trying to make some headway on the issue of the 2021 census. Um, the, the issue there is the, the question on, on religion. Um, we're, we're trying to campaign to get that changed into a, a two-part question. Uh, currently, it just asks you, what is the person's religion, which we think is a bit leading, and it's, it's a closed question. So we're we're trying to just get that changed into a two-part question. So first, first of all, we'll just ask you, does the person have religion or does the person practice religion? Uh, and we feel that's going to probably um, lead to more accurate uh, data collection on the issue. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, uh, we had, we had a meeting with, uh, um, I had a meeting with Rex Patrick uh, here in Adelaide not long ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, in general, we're as, as best as we can, um, at this point, we're uh, trying to increase uh, the amount of communication that we have, the direct communication that we have with, uh, with politicians. Yeah, yeah. So Rex Patrick, Rex, Rex Patrick, is it? Is that the guy's name? Did I get his name? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, Rex Patrick, he's a, <laughs> yeah. he's a Centre Alliance Senator Centre Alliance. South, Centre Centre Alliance. South Australia. Right, yeah. and he's quite, true, yeah, he's quite pro-secular, is he? So... Uh, yeah, yeah, he has been, yes. Right. I reckon the thing to do, um, Peter, is to find out who are the potential pro-secular people within the Labor Party. Do you, do you have yeah. a short list, a hit list of young up-and-coming Labor politicians who might in 10 years' time have a senior position who seem to be um, – because this is what the religious groups do, is they get people when they're young and they're doing their seeding, so they promote them and they nurture them, and, and they wait for them to percolate up to the top, at which point, like the Manchurian candidate or whatever, they, you know, they're, they're fully programmed. So do you, do you, do you look at, at that in terms of, because I'd sort of give up on the Liberal Party in terms of finding somebody, or, you know, it'd be even scarcer, but have you looked at who's potentially... Helpful to the secular cause in the Labor Party in the junior ranks at all? Uh, yeah, well, that, that's something that we are conscious of is, is trying to um, appeal to, in general, a, a younger audience, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, um, should, I, I guess we also should be planting your own. Sorry, you should be planting your own Manchurian candidate, Peter. <laughs> well, Sleeper agents. Yeah. That's yes, a sleeper agent <laughs> for the National Secular Lobby. Well, well the, the, in all seriousness, that's what the Christian groups have done is that yeah. they have taken um, true believers and made sure that they got pre-selection and got them in there. So 
that's way above what secular groups are capable of. But there must yeah, be yeah, people yeah. who are already in there through other means who who might be sympathetic, who might, um, you know, who might be willing to listen to the sort of ideas that you're putting forward. Because I don't know, I get the feeling that Albanese and some of the others are um, not that not that interested. Uh, yeah, that's the impression I get. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell. I suppose there's some aspect of him, uh, especially people like Albanese, trying to be careful yeah, in terms of what he puts out, um, trying not to annoy too many of the wrong people, I yeah. suppose, is what he says. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. And that's something we're certainly trying to do is, is kind of identify um, individual politicians who are um, you know, potentially going to be on our side, um, get in touch with them and try and get um, you know, some good relationships. Yeah. Now we're obviously um, maxing out our internet capacities on this uh, Zoom uh, conference call, but on this score, maybe the ACL can help can can help us out the Australian Christian Lobby because <laughs> Wendy Francis uh, put out a press release where she said the ACL calls on the federal government to direct telecommunications and internet service providers to block pornography during the COVID nineteen crisis. With Australians social distancing and self-isolating to prevent the spread of COVID-19, blocking porn online is essential to prevent internet gridlock and result in isolation or even loss of lives, the Christian, the Australian Christian lobby said today. So, do, do you suspect the ACL is overestimating the uh, volume of internet porn? Maybe, you know... Reflect, reflecting on their own personal habits. I, I, I don't know, but just for the duration of this podcast, it'd be nice if, if, if they blocked the porn so that we could have an even better bandwidth for our podcast. <laughs> and then turn back or on. maybe block the, block the ACL. Yeah. Now, one thing good that's happening in the NS uh, National Secular Lobby, Peter, is your weekly wrap where you are really um, summarising everything that's gone on in the week before. Like, that is a comprehensive list of what's happening so i encourage anybody who's uh interested in secularism to i don't know like your facebook page or whatever it always comes up on my feed um but it's it's pretty good yeah 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 i think as you say we put a bit of work into that and uh and uh yeah obviously there's a lot of other stuff going on um but yeah if, if you can just kind of catch up um, it usually comes out Saturday evening, occasionally Sunday morning, which is Saturday evening. Um, and, it, and it's a, it's a fairly comprehensive uh, summary of you know, all secular-related you know, news and, and views that have come out during the week. So, yeah, yep. um, please check it out if you, uh, if you haven't already. Yep. Did, um, did you have anything else that you wanted to add, Peter, before we, we sign you off and, and, and get our next guest on? Was there anything else the National Secular Lobby's doing? Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, with the, <laughs> the coronavirus, we're, we're kind of um, we don't want to overdo our output at the moment because um, you know I think probably people have other things on their mind. Um, we do want to keep these issues uh, kind of in people's minds to some degree. So we're certainly, you know, obviously the wrap as you see this coming in every weekend, um, and we're following up uh, and, and kind of communicating what we can at this point. Um, where, uh, especially, uh, I guess, with the, with the Don't Divide Us campaign, um, we've got a lot of material there that's kind of uh, semi on hold at the moment. There's still some stuff coming out, but that's definitely um, 
uh, looking into if you haven't, uh, haven't already. Um, yeah, I guess at this point we're just uh, trying to survive. <laughs> like yeah, <everyone>. yeah. <laughs> it makes it makes sense to really put the whole uh, campaign "Don't Divide Us" on hibernation while waiting to see what happens. Yeah, it would be just a waste of effort and money to sort of do much else. In the meantime. Um, this might help anybody from your group as well, in particular you, Peter, because you've probably wondered to yourself, uh, does the Abrahamic God exist? And you'll be pleased to know that next week we're going to answer that question because we're going to have a debate. Hugh Harris and a guy called Matt mm. Sue are going to have a formal debate on this um, podcast where they're going to discuss the uh, does the Abrahamic God exist. Apparently Matt has got a... Uh, Oh, he's got some sort of philosophy degree and he's an ex-lawyer and uh, regular listeners would be familiar with Hugh and it's going to be quite formal with opening remarks and questions from the moderator, that's me, and um, in the chat room you'll be able to ask questions. If you have a question for Hugh or Matt, um, send them to me um, because if they're good ones then I'll use them and so... That's on the agenda next week, Peter. If you're wanting that question answered, doesn't Abrahamic God exist? You'll, it'll be answered for you next week. And does Matt have a direct line to the big fella upstairs? I don't. It? Well, is that your question that you'd like me to ask? Uh, is that yes? Is, is that what? Please. Yeah. Okay. So I'll put that on the list. So um, okay. Well, uh, Peter, we shall bid you farewell and good luck and. Uh, stay safe in Adelaide. And oh, I had a really—I was in Adelaide a month or so ago and had a great conversation with um, with Brian. We met in a in a in a yeah. Italian place somewhere, a cup of coffee, and um, just talked uh, this stuff for an hour and a half, two hours. It was a fantastic conversation. So it was the first time I ever met him. It was really good catch up with Brian. So yeah, it was good. Oh, excellent! Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he told me that you managed to, to sort out. Quite a few of the universe's problems. Yeah, yeah, we did. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was good fun. So, okay, all right. Well, that's good. Um, I've got. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get you to cancel out of here, and we'll bring in Deep Throat. Thanks, Peter, for joining us. Thanks, Thanks Peter. Thanks, Peter. Bye now. See you, Peter. See you. Bye now. Bye. So, tell us, Deep Throat, what's happening with voluntary assisted dying in Queensland? Well, the good news is that the report, the parliamentary report, has been released. Um, you, you might have lost it amongst all the news about the COVID-19. Uh, uh, it was just one small sort of segment on the news and it flipped off and that was it. So um, I don't know whether that's just bad luck or or maybe there's you know someone in the, in the um, government, uh, not mentioning any names, but someone near the top uh, might be trying to hide it amongst all that. I don't know. But the other thing is that um, I read through it. It's 281 pages long, so I've, by the time I got to the end, I'd forgotten a bit at the beginning, but extremely happy, extremely happy with um, the recommendations of the committee. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a few little niggles and uh, we could perhaps go into those. Um, but the interesting thing is when you get to the end of the report, the various parties like the LMP put in their own sort of report and also there was one Greens um, member on the on the parliamentary committee, and that was Michael Berkman um, from May Maywa, and he put in his little bit as well. So um, 
Uh, one guess is that what the LNP was saying. <laughs> you reckon they were in favour or against? They were against. They were against. So, so, but the actual committee's conclusion was that it should go ahead. Assisted dying yes. legislation. Yes. Yep. Yes, and it was pretty, pretty well. Everything I, I would hope for went forward, and everything I expected. There were things that you could hope for, but you, you know, realistically, you weren't going to get. Yep. And the the other thing that was of great interest was that their first um, recommendation was to um, follow the legislation, the, the model bill, the, the draft bill that the professors Wilmot and uh, Ben White from QUT had have been working on for a long time. Ah. So they basically said, this is, go- this is our basis for our recommendations. And, and when you think about it, this is really great news from one point of view because we have legislation already written by top-class lawyers uh, and, and, and people who write this sort of stuff um, at QUT have already got the legislation ready to go. So it's sort of like, you know, the, the committee, the majority of the committee has agreed with it. And if we want to, we can just go ahead and do it right now. So, um, so that was sort of good as well to find out about. Okay, that would have been Lindy Wilmot then. I think you'd be the Wilmot you were referring. She was, right. I'm feeling old. She was a lecturer of mine when I was at university, QUT. There you go. So, now a professor. <laughs> yeah, great. So this is wider than the legislation in Victoria and other jurisdictions. Is that right, Deep Throat? Yes. Yeah, well, there's a there's a couple of um, differences, and perhaps we I should go into those. Mm. Um, the, the the actual recommendations the committee did go against the Wilmot and White bill in one way, so that was the, the prohibition on um, uh, health practitioners initiating discussions with their patients, and so that's something that you know amongst the um, going within the community they've been talking about and the Wilmot White Bill wants that to go ahead. They want to be able to have patients openly talk to their doctors about this as an option for the for end of life. Um, but the committee, that was one of the one of the recommendations of the committee that they went against. Okay. Health practitioners uh, cannot initiate so, okay. cannot initiate discussion. So, okay, so you cut out a little bit on us there, uh, deep throat. So deep you're throat. saying that the committee wanted that that the um, the 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 proposal was that health professionals could initiate an end of life discussion, but the committee said no. It's got to be it's got to be initiated by the by the person themselves. Yes, and that's in line with the Victorian legislation and the and the Western Australian legislation. Right. So that's one disappointment. So the. I guess from a personal point of view, not talking for going with Dignity Queensland, I'm not super upset about that because I think in the, the, the flow of a consultation with patients and, and 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 people in that and patients in that sort of situation are seeing their, their health practitioner on a very regular basis, you get a lot of communication which isn't necessarily verbal. So I'm just wondering if, you know, in the in the in the flow of that. Um, the idea would get across, and therefore the barrier would, the, the threshold would be crossed, and all of a sudden it'd be out in the open. So I'm not super concerned, except for the fact that maybe if you have um, family members, they might be so against it that they will jump on any sort of possibility of punishing 
the health practitioner. So that's where I would see the problem. Yeah. And in the other states, uh, one of the issues was that you needed a terminal illness that was likely to finish you off within 12 months or something like that. But this yes. this one does not have, which was kind of tough to be able to say that uh, something was going to um, cause a death of somebody within a, within a time frame uh, like that. So this one's different in some way. Yes, yeah. No, this is just this is marvelous. This one, and in fact, it's got no in the recommendations. There's no specific um, time frame at all. Um, in Victoria and Western Australia, it's got six months for a terminal illness and twelve months for a uh, a, a problem with uh, you know, neuro- neurological type problems and neuro neurodegenerative degenerative diseases. So in this particular one, they just they they purposely vague on that and the reason for that is that they recognize that it's very hard to put a time frame on when someone's going to die and i think i've mentioned this in the past that for doctors it's a bit of a heart sink question you know doc how long have i got and (laughs) and all you can see is a range of possibilities um and inevitably you're not going to get it perfect and so for some people you might say oh gee you know they're going to last a couple of years and a month later, they're in, they're gone. You know, it, it can be as stark and 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 as um, you know, for the for the doctor, for the doctor, he's really got it wrong in a, in a big way. So, I think the committee recognised that. Well, the majority committee recognised that, and um, and so did uh, Lindy Wilmot and Ben White, and they've made it specifically vague in terms of just saying the person, you know, has to be um, you know facing um, end of life. Yep. And then the other jurisdictions also have significant counselling requirements, which are not so significant in this version as well. Is, is that right? In this version, again, again, yeah, that's right. It's not a, a mandatory uh, a mandatory condition. Um, and, yeah, the vast majority of people who are dying don't <laughs> have to go to counselling, you know, just because you want to do it in a, a more dignified way doesn't shouldn't mean that you you have to trot off to see the psychologist. Yeah, yeah. Any other major differences between that and what we've seen elsewhere? Yeah, the the other one that's a little bit of a concern is that in the Will well in the Wilmot White um, proposed bill, um, they require that the doctor has to be present. When the person self administrates their assisted dying medication, so at first of you think, "What?" You know, but like in, in the other ones, they, I'm, I'm, going, I'm a little bit vague here on what uh, uh, Victoria and Western Australia um, have in their legislation. But on first principle, you say, "Well, the, 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 you know, a person's dying. The doctor's not going to really change anything very much. Um, they can just take their medication." And they pass away, and uh, it's it's as simple as that. But what I seem to get from um, Wilmot and White is that they're worried that maybe something will go wrong, and the person will take their that medication incorrectly, and sort of have a horrible ending because they just haven't done it properly. And so I just think that might be the rationale behind that. But really. Um, I think that's an unnecessary safeguard. 
what would people be using um, to 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 kill themselves? Then what? How? What, just tablets? Is that what people would be Maybe taking? Time, isn't it? Yeah, just tablets. That's right. So, just what? How many would you need? How many are they big? Does it? Oh, is many have, of them? I have no idea. The other, the other thing is, that it would depend on what they decide. Australia or Queensland is going to use for that medication. Now, there's been a few things floating around, and barbiturates are the most common thing they use. And so your dosage is going to be up there, but that's going to depend on what those tablets, what that particular preparation is, and what the strength of the tablets are. But it's going to be a few tablets because mostly you're taking a far bigger dose than what would be the usual sort of dose. Mm. Um, but there are other things out there, like in in, in the um, in the United States and those states that do have it, they, they've got a concoction of things which don't even have a barbiturate in them. They're using benzodiazepines and opioids and digoxin and, um, oh, it, it, you know, a real, oh, and, um, and beta blockers and that. So they're really trying to stop the heart, sedate the person and make sure they're t- completely comfortable at the same time. So I guess if you got a whole fistful of medications, you maybe could drop them on the ground or something like that. So... Um, I just yeah. know elderly people, for example, can have trouble swallowing just their normal medication. Um, so people yes. can have difficulty swallowing. So yes, maybe yes. So so, the, so I can see their their rationale behind it, mm. but it's again a situation of putting in safeguards that are going to make it into liquid being more appropriate. Oh. Yeah, or or liquid. That's right. I I don't. I have no idea what what would be used. Yeah. Mm. So deep throat. You you can't have a doctor administer these intravenously, can you? It's got to be something that the the patient can take themselves, isn't it? It depends on the circumstances, right? So the the way that is most um, desired is to is for the patient to self administer. Right, that gets rid of a few problems and in, in worries that someone's trying to force someone to do a or, or that. So, um, but there is a provision for people or the doctor to to administer the medication, and in in cases where people can't swallow, that would by, be by intravenous uh, injection. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what do yeah, you reckon the chances are, deep throat, of of motivating the Labor government to actually implement one of its official policies. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, there seems to be some resistance right at the top, is my impression, that, you know, with, with the Premier herself. I'll, I'll come out and say it, <laughs> the Premier herself. Well, in the party itself, there's an awful lot of um, uh, support for it. Um, and I guess it's playing politics a little bit, the same as what this this parliamentary inquiries come out with they've really brought down their own uh, recommendations based on party rather than on what they were hearing at the parliamentary um, uh, inquiry to public meetings so um yeah um the problem i've got at the moment i must admit i'm gone negative since the covid 19 thing has blown up because it's just sucking the oxygen out of any other sort of news and any other sort of public engagement and um, I just think it won't happen. That's my personal opinion. I just think it won't happen. I'm, I, I know I should be positive and pushing and all that sort of thing, but I think it's an uphill battle. 
Here's here's a plan that you guys should adopt. You could because it seems to me with COVID nineteen that um, Anastasia Palaszczuk is just copying whatever Dan Andrews says. And if you just remind her <laughs> that he's already implemented something like this, and she should just copy that as well, then that that might be the way of of getting it through. It might be the way of getting it through. Yeah, it could be. It could be as well. well my attitude is that COVID-19 is not going to last forever. Now, a vaccine is 12 to 18 months away, and then it will be dead and buried well and truly. So 12 to 18 months, um, that's not too long for us to wait, considering how long we have waited for it so far. So I don't know, you you just got to keep the pressure up, I'm afraid, deep throat, so that as soon as the COVID-19 crisis is behind it, you can hit them hard. Absolutely, and we will be keeping up the pressure. I, I'm not going to give in, even though I've gone a bit negative. But this, this, being on the Going with Dignity committee, um, you you have ups and downs as news comes in. It's it's a bit of a manic depressive sort of role. <laughs> it's a bit of a roller coaster in that way, where where everyone else doesn't see that, but uh, you get news and it changes your sort of outlook on things. Yeah. Yeah, but we get, we're going to keep the pressure up as best we can. It's just we won't get any oxygen in, in, in the public sphere very much at all. And um, so you mentioned that the opposition was against it and are you aware of what the uh, the Catholic Church had to say at all, Detroit? Well, if I saw on the news tonight that Archbishop Coleridge was giving his two cents worth with the, the George Pell thing having occurred. And he had an interesting take of thing. I don't think, oh, unfortunately, I haven't got the actual quote yet. But he was trying to, at, this was, I was listening in. I was at one of the, the parliamentary public, um, the public uh, meetings, uh, inquiry about this. And he was, he was giving evidence. And he was toting the fact that suffering can be good for you. It's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's not good, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. So, mm-hmm. so, um, that sort of got everyone's attention, including most of the, committee, the parliamentary um, committee members, um, because <laughs> suffering is a is a big deal if if it's you that's doing the suffering. So, and I was quite surprised because I sat through all but one of the uh, Brisbane um, public um, inquiry meetings, and um, quite a number of um, Christians got up and said that yeah, we shouldn't be looking at suffering as being necessarily a bad thing. Um, they didn't say it was a good thing, but they didn't say, they said it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. And, and that was really? sort of flabbergasted by that. Hmm. So that was a recent quote you're saying that he said that about suffering. Yeah, that was, that was in, oh, not, not, no, not recently. That was what he said during the public inquiry meeting right. yeah, where he was giving evidence. Okay, because I saw a quote from him as this report has come out recommending that it be introduced. And um, oh, this is an article from... The Catholic Weekly. He, he said it would be interesting. Sorry, you cut out on us there, Deep Throat. Say that again. Yeah, sorry. Did you say that he came out in favour of voluntary assistance? No, no. He came out against it and he was um, uh, quoted in the Catholic Weekly as saying um, that the recommendations came as no surprise, quote, given the cultural tide of this time and the resources invested by the supporters of physician-assisted suicide. But there is a dark irony that these recommendations appear at a time when the COVID-19 crisis is casting the shadow of death across the planet. 
And with these, yeah. re- <laughs> and with these recommendations and any legislation that may follow from them, that shadow grows darker. Yeah. Can I put out a, 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 a bit of a message to Archbishop Coleridge mm. that Dying with Dignity Queensland have been in existence for 35 years. And in that time, many of our members have died and some of them have died with suffering. And this is not a new thing that we've been pushing for. This has been going on for a long time and long before COVID-19 existed and an awful long time before any of the public even knew about um, coronaviruses. Look, I think the dark irony is that the Catholic Church would purport to comment on ethical matters. That's the that's the that's that's dark irony. And not, only, not only that, but there's so lack of, you know the dark shadow of COVID nineteen casting the shadow of death across the planet, and yet they claim to represent some kind of you know supernatural superpower who's supposed to be responsible for everything, including, you know, these microbes, and yet, you know, they're powerless or, or they're, they're, super, they're supernatural superheroes, powerless to do anything about it. I mean, talk about irony and talk about, uh, you know, lacking self-awareness. I mean, that guy takes the cake, doesn't he? Mm. I think so. I think so, Paul. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do you want me just to run through the LMP, as I said, had their little bit of a report at the end of the, the majority report. And do you want me to run through just a few things just to show you how stupid it is? Like, I actually had a bit of trouble following their logic. It just, and it was so trivial. Um, so just, just a few things I picked out and they're all in this. Sort of, so they had a big problem with the fact that halfway through palliative care was, uh, was, um, um, separated from voluntary assisted dying so that they were going to give two reports and that's what they've done. They gave the palliative care report came down and the aged care report came down and then the voluntary assisted dying report was separate. And they had a big problem with that. They said you can't separate the two out. But they are ignoring the fact that during the public inquiry they were asking questions of the people giving evidence and they always asked about both and aged care at the same time. So it doesn't make any sense that they were worried about. It. Um, they said that we can't do voluntary assisted dying while palliative care is underfunded. Well, hang on, those guys have been in power for you know in, in the past as well for a long time and have, you know not funded it. So hmm, can we rely on them to fund it? I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Um, and they re- they they question the reliability of the polls. They just said, yeah, look, we can't really trust that the overwhelming. Um, number of Queenslanders actually support this. <laughs> it's like, how many polls do you get with 80% plus of, of, of the population agree with the premise? Yeah, so um, I can go on, but, you know. Yeah, I, I've got one of their quotes here is, the conclusion we have come to is not to be seen as belittling people's beliefs, rather a criticism of a flawed process. So they don't want to belittle people's belief that assisted dying is a good idea. They just say that it's, it's a criticism of a flawed process. But the process has been perfectly normal. It's gone through all the normal channels of of a parliamentary inquiry, committee inquiry. So this is, yes. this is the process that's followed all the time. There's nothing unusual in it. And the uh, very extensive, um, the, the committee held 41 hearings and received 4,729 submissions. 
And they want to argue that this was a flawed process. Yeah, and, and as I said, I sat through you know most of the Brisbane ones except one, which was an unscheduled one, and I was really impressed with the performance of the parliamentary committee members. They asked really intelligent questions. The questions got better and better as time got on, and they got uh, uh, across their brief, and and then they come out with this. It's like, hang on, what happened <laughs> between the end of this and writing the report? You know, and it can only be the party process that. In the end, they just had to stick with party policy. Ah, so as you were listening to the opposition members during the hearing, you, you thought they might come on board or you thought they were at least being quite fair? Uh, the, I think they were fair, mm. but they were asking questions, I guess, from their perspective. So there was a little bit of um, devil's advocate in it to a sense. And one of the LMP members, I, I was sure he was going, but he was going, he was against it. But he still asked intelligent questions. You know, it, it was a case of not wanting to appear too, <laughs> too one-sided. And um, the, the other guy, um, I couldn't read him. And uh, I must admit, our, I think a lot of our members thought he was on our side, but I just really couldn't read him. But he, he was actually the, the, the best, you know, probably the best performer in some ways because he, he asked questions from all sorts of angles. So, um, so yeah, I, I, was, I was really surprised that um, this report was so trivial and um, not very logical. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's gone through the, the process properly. It's official Labor Party policy. Um, the, the polls say that people want it. It only seems that Anastasia Palisade herself might not be so keen, but she doesn't seem to be yeah. keen to do much at all. If God, it'll be <laughs> gutting if this doesn't get through. It will be so gutting yeah. if it doesn't. It's uh, yeah. We do have a bit of a problem in that it it will require if it, it'll go for a conscious vote, and I think actually, um, Deb Brinkington has also said that um, she wants to grant a conscious vote. But the thing is, in the LMP, can you really say there's going to be a conscious vote given the backlash against those three? LMP parliamentarians who voted for the, um, the abortion law reform. Um, I think it's going to be a hard ask for someone to put their head up above the parapet. Um, and I think we're seeing a little bit of the problem with the, you know, the LMP. You know, they used to have the National Party and the, the Liberal Party, and then they combined together. So we've lost that sort of. Um, a little bit of the right against the left in the in in the in the um, in the uh, in that side of the conservative side of politics. So I'm absolutely, it was a national party takeover. Anyway, yeah, and also, and so also recently, not... oh sorry, also recently we've lost um, Jan Stuckey. Um, that, that's what the the by election was in Corumban just recently, and she was even though she was in the LNP, she was a big supporter of ours. Um, on, sister dying. So our main support in the LNP has gone on. Mm. Okay. Plenty of work for you to do, Deep Throat, with your committee. Well done so far, but um, um, keep up the good fight. I will. Very good. Okay. Thank you for giving me time. And um, can I just put in one little one little thing before I go? Yep. Um, uh, I've been... Uh, um, Supporting a an app and a, a group from 
the University of Newcastle, who does flu tracking every every year. And this is I've been doing this for I, I don't know how long, could be 20 years. It's an awful long time. I just can't remember not doing it. So every winter time on a Monday, they send a, a small questionnaire that takes literally seconds to fill in. It's just about symptoms that you've had in the past week. Um, this year, they've started it earlier and they've added some extra questions to cover COVID-19. And they want more numbers across Australia um, doing this tracking to, to, to provide uh, uh, an indication of what's happening in the community. So it's just another way of keeping tabs on these sort of symptoms. So it's really easy to do. So I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it and be um, with your dear listeners to get on board and, um, and just get this. this um, it's actually not an app. It's just a website. So what, send what, you a reminder what's the address you. of the website? www flu tracking, which is one word, .net. Okay. There you go, dear listener. Head over to that and fill in the survey form or whatever the questionnaire is and um, help them out. Bluetracking.net. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. No worries, Deep Throat. Okay, we're going to move on. We will catch up with you next time. Thanks, mate. Okay. okay. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Bye now. See you. Okay. All righty. That's good. So that's all done. Just back to three of us. Uh, here we go. Now we'll just put it on a full screen and and we'll shift that across there like that. And... Right, gentlemen. Good old days. Good old days, yes, as we <laughs> bunker down in our separate little bunkers. <laughs> oh, boys. Okay, before we move on to more coronary, uh, coronavirus sort of stuff, um, just able to mention uh, Israel Folau. I don't know if I sent you the guys this one on the list. I didn't see it. Mm. Um, I'm beginning to think. Oh, there was something. Yeah. I'm beginning to think that there is a God because you may be aware that uh, Rugby Australia is in financial trouble and is close to going bankrupt because... Really? Yes. Uh, they've got... Um, they don't have a television deal after this year and with all the uh, issues going on that are affecting all sports and Rugby Australia seems financially to be in the worst position of any of the major sports. So um, they're in danger of going into liquidation. Here's the good news. That um, Israel not going to get paid out. His his out of court settlement was in instalments. <laughs> so, <laughs> bye bye Israel. <laughs> so should Rugby Australia be forced to declare itself insolvent, Falau would be treated as an unsecured creditor, and depending on whatever assets Rugby was able to muster would likely be paid only a few cents in the dollar. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, Alison is, is so good. Um, she's in the chat room and she's signed up to flu tracking already. There you go. That's how easy it is. So good on you, Alison. Yes, Falau, wouldn't that be sweet justice? Oh, that would be beautiful if that happened. Yeah. You guys sound a bit malicious to me. I don't know. Well, he's, I am very malicious towards him because he's an asshole. <laughs> he, he's responsible. I just think he's an ignoramus. Well, I don't well, think he's an asshole. He's just, he's just an ignorant, very, very poorly educated, uh, very talented athlete. You know? 
I just think he's dumb. He's just he's largely responsible for a lot of their financial problems. So the fact that that would then be one of his problems. Well, is he? Is, I mean, yeah. that that that's debatable too, because some people are holding the current CEO responsible. And in fact, I read that there's a push on at the moment for some uh, you know ex Wallabies players who mm. are planning to challenge for the leadership of Rugby Australia. Yeah. And they, I think they hold, what's her name? Castle, is it? Renee Castle, the something like runs that. It, yeah, they're, they're holding her responsible for bad management, bad leadership. Yeah, but, um, well, Falao had a $3 million settlement, so that's not going to help the financial health of an organisation. So, um, so anyway. It, it wouldn't. Yeah. But I don't think he can simply pin the blame on Israel oh. for their, you know, management issues. I wouldn't. I wouldn't pin it all on him, but it certainly. I'd say he's he's um, a significant he's component of the, their problem, in my humble opinion. But I've not seen the accounts. But um, yeah. So anyway, I think it's. I think it's delicious justice if that's how it works out. So, it is sweet. Yes, it's yeah. very sweet. Yeah. yeah. As Ross said in the uh, chat room, it seems God didn't want him to get the payout. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, let's talk now on coronavirus sort of stuff. And um, guys, I'm interested in the in the cruise ships that are basically. Well, we've got one in Western Australia that's got still like 400 passengers on it or whatever. And our government has said, you know, we're not letting you into the country. You here, you can be refueled and some fresh food and water, and on your bike, get get going. And there's a number of um, ships which seem to have been reduced to just staff, but some of the staff on these ships can be up to a thousand people, and they're all, you know, in danger of getting very sick. Here's the thing, and they're I, from they're from all over the world too. Aren't yes, cruise on these ships. Yes. So I, I don't know what sort of payment that they get, but I suppose it largely depends on who contracts them and from what country they come. So some of them are probably not all well paid. It was a, a little bit uncharitable of the Australian government to treat them like pariahs suddenly. You know, I mean, normally the government would welcome cruise ships because they money in the country and then, oh, we have a problem now, piss off. I, I thought it was a little bit um, callous myself. But, well, to me, that's in keeping with the government's attitude to boat people in general and and I'm not saying I've got I'm not saying I've got a solution to this but what I am saying is for the people who were up in arms over the Tampa for example or who said what what do you mean you can't leave vulnerable people abandoned on a ship um, who need mm. medical assistance or, or or whatever you know like where's your sympathy I just don't hear anybody sticking up for um, the cruise ship inhabitants who I, I just okay. I, and I'm not saying that we it's should. Me. I, I, yeah, well, you were the yeah, but you know, I don't know that I want them in our hospitals either. But I just find it interesting that um, there's a lot of people who are very sympathetic to to boat people in general who are you know refugees, um, uh, you know. Escaping from a place of terror or whatever, but the general law of the sea is you've got to help people out who um, 
uh, if if their vessel is in distress, you're supposed to help them. And you know, if well, I mean, my daughter was a dancer on a cruise ship years ago, and if they were overseas on the other side of the planet, I would have been expecting a Western country to take in at least the passengers and help them repatriate back, back home. So I just find it a really tricky one. I don't have a solution to it, but I just find the silence from what would normally be a very sympathetic left on boat people issues to be interesting that they I haven't heard a peep out of anybody saying, what about these poor passengers? We can't let this continue. This, well, I, I think I agree with you, Trevor. I mean, you've got to, um, you know, I would have thought that you could bring them on shore, you could put them into quarantine for a fortnight, and then after that you could say, right, now it's time for you to go home. So you've got to find your way home. You've got to pay for it yourself, but you've got to leave the country. So that would be what I would be doing with it. Yeah, but it just seems that we're not willing to take 400 Five hundred passengers and and do that. Um, yeah. Well, I can't understand that because all the hotels are bloody going belly up right now. So you think you could, you think you could turn you could turn a luxury four or five star hotel into a detention centre, which you could house four hundred people in their own room. They're not allowed to leave their room. They've got to stay in their room for a fortnight. Right? Yeah. And then after that, you could just after or a fortnight. Or a makeshift, you sorry? Could, uh, hotel. You could turn a decent hotel into a makeshift middle as well because they usually have Absolutely, yeah. and, you know, various types of facilities. You could turn it into a hospital. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. But I just thought to myself, if you wanted to quarantine people, you could quarantine people in a hotel for a fortnight. Then at the end of the fortnight, you could say, right, you're still not allowed to leave the hotel, but you've got to make your travel arrangements to get home. Yeah. Now, that's what I would be doing with them. And then, you know, it's – I was listening to a podcast this morning where they reckon that this is the uh, death bell for the um, cruise ship industry, and I certainly hope it is because, you know, they are, they're a polluting bloody thing. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous the amount of carbon dioxide that's produced by these boats. Um, you know, it, it, I'm not – sure of the facts but i'm hearing i heard on this podcast this morning that you've got this situation that if you look at the amount of carbon dioxide that's produced by the cruise ship industry that is equivalent to half the world's automobiles for a couple of hundred boats i think i think they burn a very dirty version of oil um yeah and that doesn't surprise me yeah but they also um they're registered in countries of convenience like the Bahamas or Panama yeah. or places like yeah. that. So they don't pay any tax. Um, yeah. They are able to operate ships on looser rules than they would if they were uh, registered in Australia, for example. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so... Do you get this? Are there no positives about cruise ships? Well, I can't see any, but that's oh, just me. Really? Look, look, I've, well, en- I've enjoyed my time on them when I went on them. Uh, so, uh, and- look, people, people, more and more people want to fling the world countries. That's enough. The good thing about a cruise ship, it keeps 
it carries a lot of people, keeps them, you know, accommodated, keeps them in a concentrated space and basically guides them and controls them wherever they go. So I, I think there is a plus to myself. Otherwise, if, you know, if they're not on a cruise ship, they need accommodation. So you're going to find in, you know, countries, particularly developing countries, uh, they're going to be cutting down more forests, oiling more beaches, you know, all the environmental degradation that happens when land is developed for a tourist resort. So personally, I think the cruise ship has something going for it. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, they're a blight on, on small communities. So, for example, on the Greek islands. They're a blight, yes. When, but, when, but, you when know, they... all these, look, tourism is a blight on small communities. But, you know, if they want the money and they're willing to, you know, accept them, then, you know, they have to manage, manage don't you think? Hey, Paul, can you turn your video off? Because you're just cutting out a little bit and it might help the audio if you turn your video off. But um, Okay. Uh, so what I, what I was going to say is one of the problems with them is when, a, like on the Greek islands, uh, my wife and daughter were telling me they were staying on a Greek island once. Yes, um, Watley, that does seem indulgent. And um, during the day, these Big cruise ships would call in, and and these little Greek islands would be just flooded with thousands of people, uh, and completely changed the nature and feel of the island. And then by the afternoon, when they'd left, the the island was completely different uh, because it just wasn't this mass of people that had been dis- discharged onto the island. And I believe that happens in places like Venice and and other places where. Um, where they sort of overrun a small community really quickly. And, um, you know, so I, I don't know whether they'll survive because um, Alison in the in the chat room, she said she had a good time on the cruise and would go again when there's no pandemic. I just think um, people's memories of these ships, oh, you, you I'm not going to forget this moment in time and I just think, oh, the last place I would be want to be trapped on would be a cruise and uh, who knows, people may have short memories and in four years' time when it's all over and there's a good cruise deal, people will go on them and they'll be assured that everything's fine and and whatever, but um, it, it could take a while before I get back on one. But my, my experience was a little bit different as well because when I was on, um, my daughter was a worker on there. She was a dancer and so... Um, we had extra special treatment and it was really well we were well looked after um, on the day trips and other things. It was, And I got to meet all of her friends and it wasn't your normal cruise by any means. So my experience was a bit different, yeah. So you haven't been on one? Have you been on one, Paul? Are you there, Paul? Never. I've, but I, no, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. No? Yeah, but you've got to turn your video off. Oh, I'll, I'll, do I? Yeah, um, I'll stop his video. There we go. I've turned you off. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, I've turned it off. But okay. um, no, I've never been on a cruise as such. I have travelled by ferry uh, between Japan and China. That was not, and certainly not a luxury uh, cruise by any strategy. It was a very uh, basic. Chinese on uh, 
the food was too low, not so terrible. Okay, Paul, you still broke up a little bit, but I got the impression you're talking about a ferry, and yeah, you're right. It wouldn't be anywhere close to um, to a cruise ship. So, have you been on one, Scott? No, I have never been on one. I've got no desire to go on one. Right. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I just think it's interesting the way we've treated uh, the cruise ships, and without. People doesn't seem to be any shame or or whatever. I don't know that I've got an answer for it, but I'm just surprised that there's not more people out there. Shame. What is shame? Yeah. I don't think anybody has any shame anymore, do they? Uh, it's, it's in short supply. But um, right. <laughs> I just I just think to myself, if these cruise ships are going to go belly up, you know, COVID or no COVID, do you – I suppose the other question is do you want them – um, darkening our ports and that sort of stuff here until such time as it's time to sink them. You know, it's one of those questions that we've then got to resolve what the hell's going to happen to them in the future. Yeah, I don't think they're in danger of sinking here, but they're just going to be forced onto the next country and who will refuel and restock and then force them on their way again. Like Exactly, they, yeah. They, yeah, just... When does it stop? When when will these people get? When will this crew be allowed off? Um, I just don't know. Got a lot knows. Yeah, I mean, say for a lot of them, for example, would be uh, a lot of Filipinos, for example, work on cruise ships. So maybe they'll dock at the Philippines, and 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 half the crew will leave. But um, then they'll be stuck. I mean, they'll need um, the the technicians and the workers to actually run the ship. So. Who knows what will happen? They may not let them into port, knowing that it won't leave because the local, if the local Filipinos get off, then the ship will never leave. Like uh, it's just, I can't see how that one gets solved. Uh, it's it's a very tricky one without somebody being generous and uh, putting their hand up. So, but we don't seem to hear much about it anyway. Um, what else are we hearing about? Uh, Virgin um, and Qantas, Virgin potentially needing a bailout. Any thoughts, gentlemen, on a bailout of Virgin? No. It's a private business. It's got shareholders and why should the Australian taxpayer be a poor business? Well, do you remember when TAA uh, went broke and we were left with one carrier? Yes. Well, so what? Do you remember what happened to the airfares? No, the airfares went up so bloody high that you then had you then created this situation that you could have a third carrier come in, which was Virgin, which came in and then pushed the prices down again. Now, I don't have a problem with the bailout, provided that it comes with shares to the Commonwealth. Now, one percentage I have heard was that if if the Commonwealth does take out that $1.4 billion loan that they're talking about, then that would be equivalent to 80% of the shares in the, in the Virgin Group, which doesn't really worry me because I'm no longer scared of government ownership. Mm. And if if Qantas wants the same sort of deal, that's fine. They've just got to put, they've got to offer up, they've got to offer up Qantas shares for the Commonwealth. That's all. Now, I can't see Alan Joyce ever going back to government ownership, but you know, if he's faced between that and the um, and declaring insolvency, I think he might have no choice. 
So, so I don't have a I don't have a problem with loaning money to these companies and you give them a 12, 18 month, two year period to pay it back. If they don't, it converts to equity. That's no problem for me. Does the Australian public want equity in airlines? Well, I don't that, know. Is that a good proposition, the Australian public? Well, if you if you've got the if you've got the airline stock and you've got it now because you're going to get them quite cheap now, then you've got something that you can sell potentially down the down the track. You could end up with you could end up with quite a quite a valuable position in the future. So the government or, could offload the stock down the down the track for a reasonable profit, or just blow the money completely. They could end up blowing the money completely. There's no doubt about that. They could end up blowing it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I don't know. What do you think, Trevor? Well, I think I think it, I think it's better to I think it's better to have some sort of guarantee of equity in the company than just to hand the money over and just hope and hope and pray that they're going to do the right thing by. Them. Yeah. But, but surely the federal government sold Qantas because they their their ideological position was. The government has no business in business. So, I mean, if if a if you know, big well, it was a Labor. Go- a it was a it was a Labor government that decided to privatise Qantas. Yeah, regardless, it's um, you know, I, I just can't see that the Australian public has an interest in bailing out a private business because they haven't managed assets properly. Well, I don't think you can. I don't think you can actually blame. The companies for this. This has caught everyone completely by surprise. Well, apparently you can because I read that uh, when sold, it had uh, quite quite a, a lot of um, what, what I don't know what the business term is, but it was worth quite a lot. Now they allowed their capital reserves to to be run down basically to zero. Now when they get into trouble, uh, the Australian taxpayer is expected to come to the rescue? I don't well, think so. I don't think that's the case with Qantas because Qantas, I have been told, has about a billion dollars in cash in the bank. It's also got loans and that sort of other yes. facilities of $2 billion. So Qantas could probably trade their way out of this. I don't that's think right. Qantas needs any money. Virgin, on the other no, hand, probably does need some money. Yeah. yeah. Well, Virgin probably does no, need I'm some money. Yeah. Well, they can get it from the tunnels, can't they? That's that's they what business where, is, is about. They can get it from the normal normal business lenders. Well, they Why could should get the it. Australian taxpayer? Well, because I was just simply saying that you know at least if at least if the Australian taxpayer takes equity in it, they've got something they can sell down the track. But if they want to just if they just want a bailout, no, I don't think they should get bailouts. But I do believe that bailouts that come with conditions attached, I don't have a problem with that. So, Paul, if those bailouts, if those bailouts, if those bailout conditions had a condition that said you got eighteen months to pay it back or it converts to equity, then I've got no problem with that. Paul, it'd be a really bad result if we were left with just Qantas because being a monopoly, absolutely, then, the um, the prices would go sky high, and. Yeah, uh, it's not good in any industry to allow a monopoly. So, in fact, where there are monopolies, you then break them up uh, if you can. So, we can't allow Qantas just to operate as a monopoly. And it would seem in the current environment that if Virgin 
um, was to fall over, there may not be a buyer. And if there's a buyer, great, let that buyer buy it. But if there's no buyer, then it really, the government should um, pick it up at a fire sale price. And what I was reading in the Michael West blog was that rather than take shares, um, because when you take shares, you're injecting equity into the business and you're effectively saving the value of the company for the existing shareholders. So what the government should do is just take the assets of the, of the airline and buy those. And that then leaves all the debt with the, um, with the current entity and you start afresh with a brand new business. And that then doesn't bail out the existing shareholders, which includes people like Richard Branson and, and, and the likes. So, um, so I think that's, you know, that was what Michael West was saying. And a bunch of other airlines. Yes, and a bunch of other airlines. So uh, if there's no buyer, we should say uh, there's no buyer for what you've got. We'll pay you fair price for the assets um, and we'll take those and, you know, that's going to include the, um, the staff and, their, uh, and, and all of the IT and all of the uh, infrastructure that the airline has. And um, and too bad for the existing entity; it just folds. So, so yeah, one of the problems of actually taking it's an equity. Even better idea. Yeah. yeah, it is a much better idea. So, um, so that was from Michael Absolutely. West. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so so that was that. Um, other thing that's happening, guys, with all this coronavirus stuff is like this is an historic moment in our history. And our government is spending an enormous amount of money on big things and in really important decisions are being made. And our parliament is closed and it's going to reopen for one day, quickly pass some stuff. It was open today, wasn't it? And then close again for another six months. Like what Christian Porter, the Attorney General Christian Porter said um, that uh, MPs had better things to do than sit in Parliament. He said, um, what's, <laughs> what is the point of that? If people want to sit out wow. there during the greatest economic crisis Australia's experienced and read practice and procedure of the House of Representatives, good luck to them. But we've got better things to do. No, you don't. You've, you've got nothing better to do. You, you need He's to be arrogant in, freak, isn't he? in the Parliament and you need to be yes. answering all of the questions that we have about What's going on? Like, exactly. Uh, just it, that they're supposed to be accountable to the Australian public. Yes. So the fact that we're just meekly allowing Parliament to just disappear for six months without a peep from the public is really just disappointing. Even Jackie Lambie can say that's not the right thing. That's not democracy. Like. Jackie Lambie has got a better handle on this than Christian Porter, the Attorney General. Like, um, yes. it's it's a sad state of affairs. So, it's it's dangerous. That's appalling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, a bit more specifically on Surrender Corona, Jackie mm, did something good. Yeah. Um, uh, in other news, um, apparently China. Uh, has begun begun to lift the coronavirus restrictions and citizens, um, well, according to the shovel, the shovel, uh, citizens are free to go back to doing whatever the government tells them to do. Again, once again, so 
Um, <laughs> uh, according to the shovel, the changes mean that Chinese people who have been strictly locked down and monitored within their homes for months will be free to go outside to be tracked and monitored there. So um, you'd agree with that, 12th man. So we've, dear listener, had uh, we don't talk that much during the week, as we mentioned before, and there was a bit of a Facebook discussion between us, 12th man, and with Warren and... The, on the issue of China and the USA and the coronavirus, and I'm certainly detecting in what I'm seeing on social media, um, people wanting to um, blame China for what has happened, uh, call them out and say that, well, they didn't tell the world quickly enough what was happening and they were being um, deceptive about how bad the virus was and... Even someone like, uh, or a group like the Henry Jackson Society, which is a UK think tank, is saying that other countries should be suing China for allowing the virus to get out of hand and totally disrupt the world economy. And Trump is saying things like he's not calling it the coronavirus, he's calling it the China virus. And in different things I'm seeing, it seems to me that there's... um, you know, an element of of wanting to put the blame on China and uh, and and make a big point of that. Paul, do you have any thoughts on that? I have some thoughts. Mm. I I think it's kind of ridiculous to suggest that the, the rest of the world sued China because that's, as we know, that's just not going to happen. But I I do think that they have a lot to answer to. It's well known that the, the Communist Party, uh, in the Communist Party, if, you, if you're not at the top, if you're sort of halfway down or towards the bottom, you don't want to give bad news to your superiors. And apparently that was the nub of the problem. When they first started detecting what they thought was a serious virus, uh, you know, an infection in, in Wuhan, the uh, the Communist Party Carter, Carters were afraid to tell their superiors really what was going on. And then when the Communist Party uh, bosses did find out, I think they did what they usually do, and that is not tell the world anything for quite a while. And if they had have given the rest of the world a heads up and had, uh, you know, travel restrictions uh, sooner, I think, yes, they, they could have um, prevented a lot of um, escape of infection Paul, to the countries. Paul, so, do you think that's yeah, I different? Do think, do I think, do think they have a lot to answer for. Do you think, okay, do you think, though, that that's a, a, uh, a function of the Communist Party or is that yes. what happens in any organisation? Like, do, could, you, could uh, you take the view that in virtually any organisation uh, people at the top don't like hearing bad news and punish subordinates who are troublemakers well, and who raise issues. Like you don't think that that is a is a, and and where people in charge of large organisations tend to prioritise the the uh, the business or the entity and its ultimate survival against what would otherwise be ethical decisions like do you don't think that's what happens in institutions and organizations well communist or otherwise yeah to some to some extent it probably does but we're talking about 
a whole country, you know. I mean, imagine if an outbreak of a virus somewhere in Australia. Can you imagine that the doctors would just bite the tusk if the government wasn't really doing anything about it or wasn't taking it seriously enough? Of course they wouldn't. And would they be censored? Of course they wouldn't. They would be onto the newspapers and the TV stations and word would get out. There's no way the government in Australia would keep something like that under wraps. And, and nor do I think they probably would even try to. So it's a different political system. And no, I don't think you can say that that sort of thing would happen in Australia. And it probably wouldn't in any Western country. Well, what about in the United States? You don't think that same sort of um, no, crackdown on would. dissidents would happen? No, I don't. Okay, because so people are outspoken. People so, know that okay, they have so, a right. So, what about Captain Crozier, who was on uh, commander of the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt, who sent a letter to the Navy? And he spoke out. And what happened to him? He spoke out. He was and and well, he what happened dismissed, to him? But and well, and he was dismissed. But he he was dismissed. But 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 you see, Paul, this is exactly the same scenario where you're saying there was a Chinese doctor who raised the alarm and was silenced by the people in charge. And here we've got more than one doctor. Here we've got the commander of an aircraft carrier who was silenced by the people in charge. Trevor, can you imagine any captain of any Chinese naval ship getting, you know, uh, getting getting into the news the way that American captain did? It's just not going to happen in China. I I couldn't have imagined a commander of an aircraft carrier being sacked for that until it happened. Well, I was surprised. I agree. That's the point. It was an outrageous decision. Look, Trevor, I'm with I don't think he deserved to be sacked. But but, the fact is he heard about it. Happened in China, we would not have heard about it. Okay. Did you hear about the doctors um, who are asking for better protections for their patients and staff in US hospitals? And the hospitals responded by terminating their employment. No, really? Yes. Dr. Lin got a link to an article. Bellingham, Washington. The nurses. In Chicago, a nurse, Laurie Mazakowitz, warned colleagues that standard face masks distributed by the hospital were not safe. She brought in her own high-grade N95 mask and was fired by Northwestern Memorial Hospital. She is now suing the hospital. Okay, and so she should. She should. But but even, can I keep going with a few more examples? In Pakistan... Dozens of doctors in Pakistan protesting over a lack of safety equipment. They, um, the police came, baton wielding, and broke up the demonstration by the doctors. And more than a hundred of them were um, actually fifty-three were detained during this protest. So, it's it's a nature of, it's a nature of organisations that I'm saying to you, Paul, whether they're communist or capitalist or something in between. Um, people in charge at higher levels punish whistleblowers, and this happens whether you're communist or not. So I'm saying no, yes. Sorry. Yes, I'm saying yes. It happened in in China, but it's not. I'm, I'm just saying it happens everywhere. But you're making a false equivalence, Trevor. You're saying that 
you know, this sort of thing happens exactly the same in China as in America as it does in Australia or anywhere else. Well, the principle and does. From my study of Chinese history, it does not happen in China. And people in China are very, very much afraid of getting on the wrong side of the Communist Party. Yeah, there'd be all sorts of, you know, it's... It's a much more authoritarian state. Of course, people are going to be. Of course, people are going to be much more scared to to um, to to go against uh, the orthodoxy. Of course, they are. But but I, I just I just trying to get to you that um, what I'm seeing in the media is this kind of goddamn communist Chinese. Look at what they've done, and and. And it really is, well, that just happens everywhere. Okay, it's happened here, but it just happens everywhere. And this is just yet another example of an institution um, protecting itself and silencing. But you, you don't seem to want to work with that. Um, Come on. No, I don't go along with that at all. That's a totally false equivalence, Trevor. And that, you know, I hear that from people on the left say, oh, yeah, you know, you're just, you're just bashing the communists or you're just bashing the Chinese. Now, I'm sorry, I'm taking to task a totalitarian state which does not treat it in the way that I think they should be treated and they don't even treat their doctors properly, for goodness sake. They lock their doctors up when they, when they try to alert the government and the world to a very, very major problem. I'm sorry, but I cannot imagine that happening if some, you know, some important doctors or any kind of doctors in the United States felt that they were they were they were dead to silence them, they'd be straight to the news, they'd be straight to the and they'd be telling the world. So I'm sorry, none at all. Well, well they haven't locked them up, but they've sacked them. Nurses, nurses, doctors, and the commander of an aircraft carrier, and the commander of an aircraft carrier. Like I wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have thought that was possible in a Western democracy. When when somebody is talking about this sort of issue, yeah, but we're talking about the United States and Donald Trump. We know what sort of a, a fool he is, and obviously, uh, you know, he 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 more than likely had some role in in the sacking of that aircraft carrier captain. I don't know, but look, you know. Well, 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 even, I, I, well even more uh, an indication that the executive in America is getting too strong and too powerful and is, is able to act uh, above and beyond the, the law. So what we're witnessing in America is a, is a drift towards a more totalitarian state where uh, the 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 executive, i.e. Donald Trump, can and it's say... And a drift that has to be arrested, can, can obviously. Can say, but, but that's what's happening. So I'm, my argument is this is happening all over the world, not just in China. But don't forget they have elections every four years. Yes. I'm sorry, I don't accept that at all. Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> well, I've, I've made because, the point... Because what you're, but, but, what you're saying is, Trevor, what hmm. you're saying is... It makes no difference whether we have a democratic, a liberal government or a communist government. The results are the same. I'm sorry, it isn't. No, it really isn't. No, there is a difference. But here's what I want to make the point of is 
is obviously the US is in trouble with this coronavirus and lots of people are going to die. And Trump's uh, way of dealing with this is to blame China and to turn yeah, well, the American, he's an idiot. and to turn the American public against China. And basically, we've just got over a cold war with Russia, and now he's amplifying uh, a cold war with China. And and all I'm saying is I'm seeing in right wing social media and other things a real anti Chinese um, sort of sentiment, which to me is just is just building up the groundwork for yet another Cold War, this time with China. That's how I see it. If you're asking me to defend the, um, the, you know, the Trump administration, you're asking the wrong person, obviously. As you know, I'm not a supporter of Trump mm. at all. But, but, but this is the danger I'm saying in, in singling out China and, and as, as a communist China. Look, uh, that to me is working up more of a Cold War complex than if we simply said, you know what, large organisations everywhere are, are do this where they punish whistleblowers. Yes, it's happened in China, it shouldn't. Um, China has the same problems the rest of us have, rather than China is the problem that we don't have. And if we get rid of China, we don't have a problem. Like that, that's the try and that's the angle I'm trying to promote. Is is that sort of thinking is not good for us for that reason? Not sympathetic to that at all. Uh, I, I might I might agree with you that that sort of thinking, Trevor. But I don't agree with you if if trying just say that no difference what kind has strongly disagree with that. Yeah. So um, anyway, just as a little uh, side note, dear listener, um, what do you think, Scott? Yes, go on. Well, I think you're both right because, you know, I, I can understand what you're saying, Paul, that, you know, I agree with you there that China isn't a normal country. China is a, a brutal dictatorship that cracks down very hard on its population. Witness Tiananmen Square. Witness that doctor that was forced to sign a confession when he said that he, when he was forced by the police that he was forced to sign the confession saying that he was making stuff up. He's now dead from COVID-19. And, you know, that is the sort of thing that goes on in China. However, I also agree with Trevor too, it doesn't help that you've got Trump over there saying the China virus. Now, what I've also noticed is that the China virus is something that is starting to creep into those people such as my brother who watches the right-wing news and that sort of stuff, he's now referring to it on Facebook as the China virus. It's not the China virus. It is the COVID-19 virus. It's actually COVID, no, Corona SARS-2 or something like that, or Co-SARS-2 or something like that that causes COVID-19. Now, that is what the virus is technically called. Yes, it started in Wuhan, China. Yes, it started at the wet market. But if you wish to criticise China for slaughtering wild animals, that's fine. You can go ahead and do that. But you can't just label a virus something that came out of China and call it the China virus. That doesn't work. Hey, Scott. Do you, you know, Scott, I have not seen anybody except Trump 
refer to it as the China virus. In well, my brother I, has. I, I my have. brother's seen it. Yeah, and, I have. You know, I've also heard. Uh, I've also heard or people. The Wuhan virus. Yeah, the Wuhan virus. I've heard. I've heard that being used on Sky News. Yeah. You know, it is. It is a hell of a concern that you've got these dickheads that actually say stuff like that. Hey, Scott, have you ever heard of the two thousand and nine USA flu? No, that's swine flu, isn't it? Uh, it was H one N one. Yeah, yeah, that's swine flu. Yeah. Like it's called H one N one. They didn't. Will didn't say, "Oh, we're going to call that the USA two thousand and nine virus." Like just H one N one. So yeah. Um, the other thing is, um, you guys are aware of the story about um, the Spanish flu and its naming. Yeah, it, it was named the Spanish flu because during World War One, about the only country in Europe who had a media. And so Spain was basically where the first cases were um, not necessarily detected, but actually discussed in the mainstream media. And so people just assumed that it started in Spain, which it didn't. And a lot of people hypothesize that it actually started states. Yes. Yep. I thought it had started in the European trenches, wasn't it? Uh, it could no. have been in Naples. It could have been in the US. But uh, the Spanish were sort of um, independent during the war at that time and they were happy to talk about it, whereas nobody else was because of morale. And mm-hmm. in the end, Spain got lumbered with the, with the, uh, with the name the Spanish flu when... When in fact it did not start there, so okay, um, so yeah, Spanish flu um, misnomer there. Mm. Right. Oh, what else have we got here? Um, Craig in the chat room says the virus is SARS-CoV-2, but the disease, right. okay, uh, COVID nineteen like measles. Okay, as if uh, and rubella is the virus. As if, oh, like measles is the disease, and rubella is the virus. Mm-hmm. So COVID-19 is the disease, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. Thank you, Craig. That's a good little tidbit. Uh, look, there's a bunch of other stuff we could go through. Um, do you guys have anything in particular that you wanted to say? Because we're coming up to an hour and a half, I think, or longer. Churches will be considered as workplaces. Scott Morrison says churches will be considered as workplaces for Easter services and given some flexibility under social distancing rules. Now, that just screams where this government's priorities are. You know, they've said that churches can be exempt from social distancing rules just for the Easter long weekend. You know, it's just beggar's belief that you've got this situation that you've uh, got a situation that you get. You know, I don't know if they're going to allow people to actually congregate, are they? No. So it just means no. they can have extra production staff for singers and audio technicians and other people. So right. So they're getting ready to live live stream the church services, are they? Mm. Mm. Yeah, okay. That's right. But apparently they couldn't have all those people there if it wasn't a workplace. So they still are getting special treatment as a workplace. Hmm. My answer to that is if it's a workplace, does that mean that they should be paying tax now? Exactly, yeah. Mm. I agree wholeheartedly with you. Mm. Mm. All right. That was the only thing I wanted to get off my chest. Yeah. Um, Uh, I don't have anything particular to say. I just wonder why more people in mainstream media aren't pointing out the incredibleness 
of the uh, the religions in general and these so-called chiefs and prime minister who are, you know, talking to their, their sky fairy asking for help when it's the bleeding obvious that there is no sky fairy and that this, you know, diseases happen with or without the intervention of their sky fairy. You know, why aren't the people in the mainstream media talking about this? This is a big story and a great opportunity to advance secularism in this country and everywhere else. Yeah, Meredith Doig um, wrote it very well in a piece. Uh, she said, the Prime Minister expressed concerned, concern for those affected by these unprecedented times and calls upon his God to show mercy and compassion. So what might be the role played by this God in the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic? There are four possibilities. He is not aware of it. He is aware but powerless to intervene. He is aware but happy to allow it to continue. He does not exist. If the first is true, then God is not all-knowing. If the second is true, then God is not all-powerful. If the third is true, then God is cruel. Uh, as the Prime Minister might say, let us hope and pray that the fourth is true. <laughs> but he doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Well said, uh, Meredith. So, all right. Well, there's a bunch of other stuff we could talk about. But you know what? It is a little bit – I am a little bit uh, overdone on COVID-19 now. And <laughs> and it's just been too consuming. So I'm really looking forward to next week, um, guys. It'll just be Hugh and uh, Matthew and myself, and they'll be debating, does the Abrahamic God exist? Um, obviously, Hugh will be saying no, and Matthew will be saying yes. <laughs> but uh, okay. so they get opening remarks and rebuttals and all the rest, and I get a chance to ask some questions. And dear listener, you will get a chance to ask some questions in the chat room But uh, as we go along. And But if you like, you could always send me your questions early because if they're really good, I'll make sure I definitely ask them. And that will be an interesting debate. So uh, and that will hopefully distract us from what's going on in the world. So that will be uh, Tuesday next week, 7.30. Um, that will be an interesting one, a full-on debate. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Right, gentlemen, until next thank time. You, thank you. Oh, oh, actually, a quick thank you to the patrons. I, sh I really um, – let me just find the patrons. And um, quickly to uh, – let me just see here. Sean, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayno. Oh, Landon, by the way, uh, coming up, Landon, to your third anniversary, 27th of April. Haven't heard from you for a long time, Landon. What's What's happening? Uh, Landon's yeah. in lockdown in Thailand right, right. now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so he can't he can't go back to China. Ah. Okay. So he's um, conducting classes and that sort of stuff via the internet. Ah. Right. Okay. Well. G'day, Landon. How are you? So, Landon, you've got plenty of time to send us a speak type message, doesn't he? That he does. He's got. Yeah. He's got internet and he's got a computer. Get to it, Landon. <laughs> Wayno Ayame, Alison, Steve, Tony, Wall, Jimmy Spud, Kane Birch, Bronwyn, Ben, Matt J, Robert Whitby, Rod Harris, Palais, Maddock Man, Dominic DeMassi, Liam McMahon, Dave Ryland, Daniel Curtin, Harry Watson, Peter Gillespie, Captain Doomsday, Wheat Watcher, Andy Dowling, Murray Waper, Melinda, Adam Priest, Professor, Dr. Dentist, Will, Glenn Bell, Craig S, Matthew, Alexander Allen, Paul Waper, Tom Doolan, Tarot, Camille, Kim Brown. Johnny Darko, Clinton Riggs, Gavin S, Dire Straits 05, Tony Eels, yet another Pinker fan. That's something else, Simon. Let me know. Um, we need to do a book review. 
Um, Graham Hannigan, Mark Clark, Citizen Six, David Capley, Lloyd Berg, the 12th Man Fan, Andrew Jackson, Yam Yam Blue and Shane Ingram and the non-patrons, Dean Stretton, Ken was the beneficiary, Mr Anderson, Corinne, Matman, Beverly, and Damien from Redline Digital, Wayne Seaman and Jared Terry. Thank you all for being patrons. You too, dear listener, can um, become a patron. Go to the website, click on the link, dollar a show is all we ask. And I reckon actually that that episode that we did with uh, Stephen Hale on economics, Scott, did you get to hear it? Yeah, I did hear it, yeah. Are you convinced by modern monetary theory? I've listened to it twice. I'm not convinced yet, but I've got to go back and listen to it a third time. Mm. It is very, very interesting what he's talking about because he's turning the whole thing entirely on its head. Yep. And it's almost like you could just completely ignore the $130 billion that the government's just put us into the hock for. Yes. Yeah. You know, it is it is something that I'm having a lot of difficulty getting my head around, but I have come a hell of a long way. Mm. So, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. So that was invaluable, I reckon. And Absolutely. And I hope you can get him back because I think it would be very interesting to hear what he has to say on other issues too. Yeah. And I know Alan Kohler on ABC has been referring to modern monetary theory mm. quite a bit and – um because he interviewed the other guy who's um, uh, one of the other guys who's a proponent of it. And anyway, Alan Kohler was saying that at the rate that the Reserve Bank is buying bonds in the secondary market, it will, if it keeps up at its current rate, it will have acquired all of the debt um, in about four months' time. So effectively, the debt that's been created by yeah. this budget will be simply um, back in government hands. Um, um, within about four months. So it's tricky. Anne Reid said, listen to the Alan Kohler interview, you will be convinced. So, yeah, listen to that one. Um, and I've even thinking I might even do a little video on it with some diagrams, with flow charts or something, because to some extent you it would help to see it in a bit of a diagram. But, uh, yeah, so it's interesting. I've come across a few different articles in the past week about all the debt that we're being created and how are we ever going to pay for it? And as I'm reading them, I'm thinking to myself, guys, you're completely missing the point on this debt. It's not what you think it is. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, one of our better episodes. So, yeah. Right, okay. Absolutely. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. On that note, thanks, Paul. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, everyone in the chat room who contributed. No worries, Trevor. It was very good. Mm. Send me your questions for the debate next week. Looking forward to that one. Bye for now. Cheers. Thanks for joining in. Bye now. Mr Speaker, Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. This is a nation where you have the freedom to follow any belief system you choose. Secularism is just one. It has no greater claim than any other on our society. As US Senator Joe Lieberman said, the Constitution provides for freedom of religion, not from religion. I believe the same is true in this country. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said, and... When you're talking to your friends, say, hey, 
I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.